from the stables in Milton Keynes, home to world-class music, entertainment, is Milton Keynes International Festival, and a whole lot more besides. This is Turn Up The Volume, with your host, Nick Coffer. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of Turn Up The Volume, brought to you by the stables in Milton Keynes, your monthly appointment with the artists and performers who make the stables one of the very finest and most diverse venues in the whole country. Over recent months, I've been lucky to speak to people who definitely fall into the category of national treasure, be that Tom Robinson, Bob Harris, Richard Coles, to name but a few. And this episode is no exception, as we welcome Dr. John Cooper Clark to the podcast, known as the godfather of punk poetry. He's coming to the stables in April, and I'll be talking to him very shortly. We'll also look ahead to the incredible narrated musical Rush, a joyous Jamaican journey which tells the story of reggae and the Windrush generation. Plus, we'll hear from Chris Hardy, tuba player in one of the world's finest brass bands, the Brighouse and Rastrick Brass Band will be entertaining you at the stables in a few weeks' time. As ever, we'd be really grateful if you could leave us a review or a rating. It really helps other people to find out about this series. And don't forget to click on follow to receive a notification whenever a new episode drops for you. So let's speak to Dr. John Cooper Clark. And I think you're in for a treat here, whether in tough clubs in Manchester in the 70s or on the GCSE curriculum, he's been connecting with people for nearly 60 years. His poems number among some of the most iconic of the modern era and one of them, I Want to Be Yours, was put to music by the Arctic Monkeys on their 2013 album AM, a composition which has since garnered over one billion streams. John's latest collection, What, suggests that he's more vital, more on the button than ever before. And I'm delighted to say he joins me now from Colchester. John, welcome to Turn Up the Volume. Fantastic, Nick. Thank you. <laughs> John, I'm going to give a little bit of behind the scenes. I wouldn't normally do this because obviously these interviews don't happen, you know, instantly. It's not like I've just dialed you up and we've just we, we've been chatting for about half an hour and there's a very naughty part of me obviously I can't do this but there's a very naughty part of me that would love to just publish everything that went before because we, we've we've done the we've done the full journey John it's quite clear that with you um you know when we start talking we we could be here for quite a long while well you know my time is my enemy the old enemy on the wrist ticking away Nick in fact let's never new rule gone no references to the passage of time. See how you get on. So what went on before this interview stays before this interview. And you've actually now just messed up the rest of my interview because the whole thing is about the passage of time. No, so, no, yeah, of course. Say what you like. Ask, ask me what you like. I'm let, kidding. Let, let, me, let me reshape the whole piece. Look, I'll tell you what, let, let's start in an obvious place. There's lots of stories to tell, but let's start in an obvious place. And, and that is going to be poetry. Um, I've read your new uh, collection, What, which is brilliant and we'll come on to that a little bit later on in this thank interview you, thank you but for me isn't there a little bit of a, a paradox with poetry because it's one of the art forms and in many ways perhaps the only art form which we all have pretty much tried at some point or another the, the absolutely 100 percent agree with you it's the one that we all think we could do and yet equally poetry itself remains in some ways a niche is, is that the paradox I don't think it's the... Uh, I think it's very important to people, actually, uh, you know. Uh, I've been saying for a long time exactly what you just said Said there. It's the one that everybody gives it a go. Why wouldn't they give it a go? People talk about my poetry being accessible, but um, all poetry is accessible. You know, oil paints are expensive, and you might not be any good. I've said it before, I'll say it again. You know, tap dancing lessons are expensive and you may have no aptitude for it but yeah everybody can get hold of a pen or even if they're subliterate they could speak it into a dict you know a dictaphone or one of the many aids in this regard yeah 
So uh, everybody gives it a go, put it this way. I don't think Hallmark cards are going out of business. People write them, don't they, for, uh, if only for the set pieces of life, you know, weddings, funerals, bar mitzvahs. Engagement parties, uh, you know, it's uh, everybody gives it a go at some point. There is this sort of uh, myth about nobody likes poetry. No, people used to say that to me when I determined to become a professional poet. You don't want to do that. Nobody likes poetry, but I, uh, I'm sure they do. There's always been poets in, on the on the periphery of show business. There, I see myself as being actually part of a, 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 a part of a tradition. Yeah, it's not that outrageous. Uh, the music hall there was always a monologue uh, artist on the bill, and they all give it a go, didn't they? Harry Champion, Gus Ealing, Dan Leno, they all did a bit of rhyming. And uh, I suppose the most well known of them all in this country, anyway, would be uh, Stanley Holloway, for instance. And over in the states, you had people like Phil Harris. And if you listen to Rex Harrison in any of those, you know, mm. My Fair Lady and things like that, he didn't really sing, he just kind of spoke over yeah. some music. And of course, rap is poetic as well. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I knew you'd get to rap, and absolutely it is. What else is it other than poetry? I wonder whether, from what you're saying, that we're perhaps a bit too linear about how we divide up poetry and music. I mean, you were very close to The Fool, whose frontman, Marquis Smith, was unequivocally, absolutely what I or anyone would describe as a poet. I, w- I would describe his stuff as poetic. Uh, it was Ernest Hemingway that said, uh, all sport aspires to boxing. Well, I think all art aspires to poetry, in that uh, any work of art, whether it's a sculpture, a painting, a piece of music, any piece of art, if it has a quality that haunts you for the rest of your life, or for a very long time anyway, if it has a haunting quality that... Uh, what do you say? What 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 is the adjective you would uh, you would impose upon that work of art? You would say that it had a poetic quality, yeah, wouldn't you? And you're absolutely right because we we use the, right. the word poetic. We talk about poetry, emotion, whether it's as you say, a painting Precisely. or even a great move in a football match is or, 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 is or in the case of that, or in the case of that song by Johnny Tillotson that you've just referenced there, a girl. Yeah. What does the word poetic mean? To you, the great poet. Well, exactly what I delineated uh, earlier. Uh, for me, it has to have some kind of uh, dynamic that will put it in your brain, possibly for the rest of your life, in spite of yourself. I mean, I learned, I, I got my love of poetry at school from uh, having to memorise, you know, uh, whole chunks of 19th century verse. It was uh, never did me any harm. The Michael Gove method. And of course, I didn't understand every everything about those poems. They were written by a person that was older than I was a hundred years ago. We would do things like, you know, Rudyard Kipling, Barrack Room Ballads and uh, heroic stuff like that. Sir Henry Newbolt, Vitae Lampard and, uh, you know, real stirring stuff. The Lady of Shalott. <laughs> and a lot of romantic stuff also, but all from the 19th and early 20th century. So I got a real uh, bug about it. And then, of course, I went to see uh, Bob Hope in uh, 1958 at the Palace Theatre in Manchester. Long story short, I was the only nine-year-old in the building, you know, <laughs> and he, so he was doing a week of shows at the Palace Theatre. Yeah. Just big, big star. All I knew about Bob was really, uh, you know, uh, uh, Pale Face and the Lemon Drop Kid and those 
uh, you know, Bing, with the ones he did with Bing, the road movies. I already thought the guy was hilarious. But I wasn't prepared for his kind of, this kind of slick stand-up comedy, a, a one-man, one-microphone and, a, a, and a, a, a full house. That I'd, I'd never seen before. That was kind of the American model of yeah. uh, a comedy. I know he wasn't American. Uh, you, people will ring in and say he was actually English, but he was the most American guy I could possibly think of at the time. So we went to this show, and uh, it was a birthday present, tickets to see Bob Hope at the Palace Theatre. Wow. I'll give you an example of one of his, one of his routines in a moment, but all his gags were about golf and uh, the adult world, divorce, alimony, and not even the British adult world, you know, the American yeah. adult world, where they spoke of alimony and divorce and things like that. You know, it's a totally American thing then. Yeah. Nobody knew anybody that had been divorced, not, not in our neighbourhood anyway. But anyway, there it was, what's divorce? But there I was lapping along with everybody else just because of, you know, the cadence of it all or something, you know. And plus, I, you know, just his, the guy's face and remembering all those great movies. Just, uh, I was cracking up along with all the adults, and uh, and that's when I realised, you know, there was only one guy in there that wasn't laughing, Bob Hope. Yes. So I figured, you know, what a, uh, how how great would that be, you know? And, but you you got to be good. You got to be good to be able to do that. You know, that was a, a big, that was an ambition. It became an ambition of mine then. But the only way I could figure that I could do that was with poetry, which I'd become really very good at at school. See, that's what intrigues me. It's clear that from that young age, nine, ten years old, you wanted to be a poet. That That's relatively rare, ordinarily speaking, let alone someone, you know, growing up where you did and, and in the environment that you grew up in. Well, I missed out on a lot of school, so, uh, you know, I've, I've ne- but, uh, you know, I've never needed logarithms, have you? Can I have that time back? I'm staring death in the face. Can you give me that time back? Yeah. Like Graham Nash said the other week on the TV, your, your, all your money won't buy you one second of time. It was tuberculosis to the rescue with me. You know, I, didn't, I, I missed out on a lot of school, but I read a lot and, uh, and I was very interested in uh, poetry thanks to uh, an inspirational teacher, Mr. Malone. Right. I became, as I say, very good at it. And it was, the, it was, and st- it was and, and remains the only skill that I really possess. One of the questions I often ask myself when preparing to speak to artists for, for this podcast is whether they were actually born at the right time. Would they have been huge in a different era? Would they have enjoyed less success at a different time? And it strikes me that you were born at the right time, growing up, maturing, just when punk was coming to the fore. Was that serendipitous? Oh, for a lot, for a lot of reasons, a lot more important reasons. That you know, you you hear a lot of people say, "Oh, I wish I'd been born a thousand years ago." You know, <laughs> but uh, you know, I wouldn't have been born any other time. You know, for a start, it was only two. It was only about seven years before I got TB that they discovered a, a treatment for it that had, right. and it had ceased to be a, an automatically life-threatening situation. Streptomycin, the discovery of 
stre- streptomycin, which actually made my made my survival uh, in a literal way possible. So uh, I wouldn't have been born at any other time. And then, of course, yeah, just out there at the time of punk rock and that. Yeah, like that. that was a perfect springboard for me, no doubt about it. But I was trying to make it in show business before the punk rock thing. But, uh, you know, I kind of already looked the part. Because around 1975, I had a residency at a club called Mr. Smith <laughs> in the middle of Manchester. And I was trying to make it. As I, I'd seen this movie, it's the, the Small World of Sammy Lee. When I was a kid in 1962, I think it was, Tony Newley's in it. And uh, he plays this guy that he, he, he appears as a compare, tells a few gags, brings on the acts in about three, in three separate nightclubs in Soho. Yeah. So I thought, you know, well, that looks like a glamorous way to earn a living, you know, in a kind of, you know, sleazy kind of way. That, you know, it had a kind of sleazy attractiveness about it. Plus, he, he looked like a proto-mod. You know, he had a kind of pericomo hairdo and shark skin Ivy League suit. So I thought, yeah, that's the life. <laughs> so I got this residency at Mr. Smith, you know, with this idea of myself. So I was wearing like tonic suits yeah. and a, a sort of feathered suede head haircut. But it wasn't the look. I mean, even your your uncle was wearing flares and seed packet shirts. He was. How did you know my uh, uncle? Sideburns. (laughs) Yes, indeed, I bet. Especially seeing as your dad worked in the record, in the, uh, you know, music. Exactly. You would know the look. You would know the look around 1975, but there was I. He's still wearing it in 2024. But but yeah, I am. But I've been I've been wearing the same clothes since 1965. Since I tell you who's responsible for this, Ronnie Wood. In 1965, I, I used to go. To a, 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 there were several basement clubs in Manchester in the 60s, and I I was a member of them all. The most famous being the uh, Twisted Wheel, where the whole Northern Soul thing yeah. got started. But I, there was also others like the the Oasis, which uh, featured you know chart acts, but it was in a 150 capacity basement space there was a group on called the birds now that's not the birds that did hey mr tambourine man roger mcguinn uh west coast american birds this was uh, an r&b group from london called the birds b-i-r-d-s featuring one of the wood brothers and i already knew uh, arthur his elder brother arthur from a, a band called the art woods and they were all kind of like on the, a bit stonesy yeah kind of r&b what they called R&B at the time, pretty things, the stones, you know. And the, and the birds had brought out uh, this single called Leaving Here with a very heavy barcode riff, courtesy of Ronnie. Anyway, we went to see him, you know, I'd, we'd heard the record, went to see him, and they were a really stylish bunch of real proper mods, you know, real, you know, the good haircut and everything. And uh, the kind of clothes that you, weren't available if you lived in Manchester. Incredible looking band. Immediately, you, you you know, Ron came out and you could see why they were called the birds. <laughs> you know, it looked like this exotic sort of uh, predatory, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, raptor. You know, he's a bit, he's like me, a bit like me, you know, a bit beaky. He was skinny and he had with uncontrollable sort of moddy hair. So he was my, uh, he was my uh, sartorial he's role model after that. You know, nobody else looked like me and him then. But it was great the way he looked like you. Yeah, that's why they called the birds. So anyway, so I already looked like the part of I was working at this place, uh, Mr. Smith's, as a sort of compare, joker. Was this the Bernard Manning Club, or, or was that a different one? No, this was after I did that. Yeah. After I did that, which was met, 
met by indifference on a mass scale, but not hostility. So uh, so that was the most hard-nut place you could possibly play in Manchester. So I could just, uh, you know, it's pre- it was quite impressive. So then I started doing little walk-on spots at places like Jerry Harris's Piccadilly Club. And uh, there were lots of these cabaret joints at the time in the mid-70s in Manchester. You know, they would have like a, a top-flight TV act some of them. Jim Davidson would appear at a lot of them, yeah. for instance, and uh, Jackie Carlton, Jim Bowen, you know, and, and Over the Hill, the best for me, though, was they would have Over the Hill, uh, well, not Over the Hill, you know, they still had their vocal powers, but singers who'd peaked in the pre-rock and roll 50s, you know, people who rock and roll had pushed them, really pushed yeah. their nose out a joint, but they had to keep singing because, you know, they were, they, were, they, they had... They had hit records. Yeah. People like, I tell you, Lena Martell, the likes of Lena Martell, uh, for instance, who kept at it on the cabaret circuit and then uh, came back with uh, One Day at a Time. And at one time we uh, we had on at uh, Mr. Smith's, I think it was, uh, we had, I brought him on, ladies and gentlemen, the Prince of Wales, <laughs> the cry guy himself, <laughs> the knee bob of sub, Johnny Ray. Yeah, Johnny Ray. I was always a fan of his because, you know, before Elvis, he was about the most extreme singer around. Let's just move back to punk momentarily because you mentioned there cutting your teeth in fairly hostile environments, learning how to manage a crowd. And I wonder how you were viewed, certainly in in those early days when you were were touring with punk bands. Was poetry not viewed as a little bit establishment-y? It depended which venues you meet. I mean, in the provinces, obviously, the... uh, the brutal side of it all was played up by all the newspapers and that. You, you can't blame them, you know, the imagery, all that barbed wire, razor blades, or, you know, unpleasantness of every kind elevated to a T-shirt yeah. illustration. You know, it's all part of the part of its charm. <laughs> but uh, it was all artistic. I mean, you know, it only lasted two, three years tops, didn't it, really? And, it, and at the beginning, it was... There were only two rules, no beards, no flares. After that, you could totally use your imagination. And it was all the artistic kid. For a start, you know, if you look at the lyrics of, you know, Joe Strummer and Mick Jones, you know, and, and, you know, Rotten's lyrics, suddenly lyrics were very important. Yes. Which is which is quite unusual in pop music of any kind, you know. No, I don't think any pop record was a was a, a hit because of its lyrics. You know, it's a very much all of a package, isn't it? You know, one hand washes the other. The music accept, accentuates this without any need for words, and that's what I mean. Writing a song is is entirely different from writing a poem. You you write a poem, you got to write write in all the dynamics and leave nothing to to the imagination of the reader or you know it's, it's very important that you've got so much work to do as a poet you don't have melody on your side really however although you say it's harder to to write a poem and, and poems are not lyrics you have some pretty good experience of a great poem becoming a great track well that's uh, that very rarely happens in fact i can only think of we well, talking about arctic monkeys yeah. version of i want to be yours here yeah. aren't you uh I'm so glad they did that, and I, I can't. I'm, every day, I thank God for the, for, for those people. You know, they've uh, elevated me to the status of a king on Earth. <laughs> a billion streams with a, a 1.8 billion streams. Yeah, yeah. Now, you know, as, as a poet and part-time egomaniac, 
<laughs> or should that be as an... Uh, I'll reverse that. A full-time it would, be more it would be more accurate. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, music to my uh, music to my ears. Uh, no, they did a great job of that. It's a, it's a beautiful version. Uh, he did it by not doing very much. Sensational. He's got a terrific voice. The only other t- example of a poem being converted successfully into a song that I can think of is uh, The Road to Mandalay, as sung by... Uh, Frank Sinatra. On the road to Mandalay, where the old flotilla lay, and the dawn comes up like thunder out of China across the bay. Oh, it's got a great line in it. Take me, so- take me somewhere east of Suez, where the best is like the worst, and there ain't no Ten Commandments, and a cat can raise a thirst. It's there, it's there that I would be. Flowing stately to the sea on the road to Mandalay. Blah, blah, blah. Apologies to Francis Albert Sinatra. That's the only other example I can think of of a, a poem being turned successfully into a song. We we love it when our artists on Turn Up the Volume do an acoustic version for us, uh, and you've done it there for us, John. You've done it absolutely <laughs> perfectly. Look, I want to talk about your your new uh, collection very shortly, but I do just have to touch on. We said the past was banned, but I want to touch on a little bit the the nineteen eighties because I wonder whether success was bad. For you, when you look at what happened in the eighties, the period that you call your your wilderness years, did success prove to be a bad thing for you? Well, I can only look at the full story uh, from this end of it. Really, apparently not. But yeah, it wasn't enjoyable. I wouldn't want to revisit those uh, those times. Really, it wasn't a good time for me because you know punk was all over, and you know I, I love it. we were talking about punk and anything that was with uh, perceived to be anything to do with punk in the eighties was really not was not what was required. Not many punk, not many of the punks carried on really. So that sort yeah. of adamant did real well, and uh, the P- Pogues maybe a few people, you know that. Everybody kept working, didn't they? I suppose. Even me. I, I mean, I never stopped working. I had to. I always. I was always broke. <laughs> so I, you know, whether I was writing new stuff or not, I, I sort of always had to work for a living, and I never had to get an actual, you know, job. Can you indulge me for one minute? Um, there's a theme developing in these interviews for, for this podcast where great artists, great performers give insight into other great artists and great performers that perhaps we don't have a clear insight of. And I'm just a little bit intrigued by Nico simply because, you know, as as with 80% of the rest of the world, <laughs> everyone loved the Velvet Underground. Everyone was there even though they weren't there. But, I but, don't blame you. But, but can you just give us a sense of Nico? Because I genuinely don't, have one. I absolutely loved her as an artist and continue to love her as an artist. And she was clearly a beautiful soul and a beautiful woman and, and quite a vulnerable soul. But you, you lived with her for a period of time. You were friends with her. What would you tell us about her? Well, uh, she, she, I mean, she had a uh, social, you know, glamorous people, you know, that she knew uh, the world over. Federico Fellini. Right. 
uh, for a start. Andy, Andy Warhol, obviously. Uh, you know, and and the vel- who, who doesn't love the Velvets, like you say? But, uh, you know, so many avenues she could walk down. Yeah, absolutely. She was well, in, At the time when Brigitte Bardot was around, she was also she was in in the top ten most beautiful women in the world. Right. So and you know she was in La Dolce Vita for a, a couple of seconds, wasn't she? You know she's real. She was real beautiful looking woman, but very robust. You know she wasn't willowy or anything. You know which was the vogue then. She was very, you know, a lot, very big statuesque. I would say you know you know very uh, imposing. You know that was very apt title she had on one of her albums the drama of exile yes i think that's very her you know it's very 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 exotic very exotic person was she vulnerable Um, as well as being robust i don't i don't think so yeah no no more than any other uh drug addicted person if you wanted to mug somebody (laughs) you wouldn't have picked on nico (laughs) you could find a more compliant victim elsewhere (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about your latest collection because I've read it and I've loved it. And it's called What, which I didn't realise is what poets used to say when they when they would stand up in a you know in a literary salon back in the the nineteenth uh, century. And then they'd say What in order to get everyone's attention. This is new. That's on right. Me. It's uh, it's it's a kind of achtung. Yeah, yeah, it's it's one of them. If somebody shouts, somebody shouts, "What you're going to drop your cutlery and look round and see what's going on?" Do you know what strikes me in this collection is the incredible breadth of it, the incredible variety. So you can go from a two-line, well, maybe four-line poem like "Lydia Girl with an Itch," which is all about an STI um, necrophilia, <laughs> which is which is a couple of lines, and then to other poems which are, in some cases sort of two three pages long there's there's one which uh, stood out for me intrigued me called blue collar waller oh um, glad, glad you picked up on that yeah 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 that's the most recent one in it i'll tell you why i'll tell you why it intrigued me because okay without making this about me you know i'm sort of on that side of masculinity that's sort of quite sensitive quite in touch with my my feminine side quite deep thinking way too deep thinking quite ruminatory and there's many a time where i think oh you know if only i could be like that bloke that goes to the pub and whose life is quite simple well exactly and, and he's blue collar waller well, exactly. You know, he's the one you suspect your wife of fancying them. <laughs> he's a Jason Statham lookalike. Yeah, exactly. Precisely. That says it all. In, in, the, the highest paid guy in Hollywood, the state, by the way. <laughs> where, where, the where, highest where, pa- p- Pisses all over Leonardo DiCaprio, any of them. Yeah. There's, there's, there's the state and then there's everybody else. The state could go into Leonardo DiCaprio's house and say, I'll give you... 24 hours to get your stuff out of here. <laughs> yeah, I'm coming. I'm moving in. <laughs> I've just bought the entire block. Get your stuff together and fuck the fuck off out of it. And he'd win as well. And just buy the whole block. Yeah. I don't think he'd do that. He seems like a nice guy. No. Did you know what I was thinking while I was, while I was reading the collection? I was, I was wondering where all this comes from. You know, where, For example, where does Blue Collar Waller come from? And then, Well, it's exactly that. It's exactly what you took. You hit the nail on the head. I, I'm, a, I'm a flaky poet. I, I, yeah. I, don't know how to, I don't know how to do any of this shit. <laughs> but we all know a guy who can. And uh, like I say, you know, you wouldn't leave your wife alone in the house with them. So sh- do, you want a demo, do you want a demo of this number? Go on. 
Yeah, let's, let's, I've never read this in public before, so uh, that would it's, be it's, it's, amazing. It's a very, very fresh, very fresh, and like you, like you say, it's uh, it's from the point of view of uh, well, it used to be called Harlesden Hard Hat, <laughs> right? Because it's set in like Guardian Reading, North London. Hence the opening line. As a poet, you have to adopt positions, right? And yeah. here, I'm adopting the position of a, a plant-based eating, Birkenstock-wearing, North London Guardian reader. <laughs> right. <laughs> Off you go. So, there's a heteronormative handyman west of the fair trade aisle. He's wearing full-length trousers and a patriarchal smile. He's shod in manly footwear. His house phone has a dial. He doesn't deal with crank calls. His attitude is on file. He's an old-school delinquent eating chips and drinking ale. While listening to the Beatles, he ought to be in jail. His obstinate resistance to every social fad keeps him at a distance, but his influence is bad. He could be the plumber, the mechanic, or your dad. Smoking his way to an early grave, when he gets there, we'll be sad. He's an old-school delinquent with a Cosworth whale tail. He built the world we live in. He ought to be in jail. His emotional illiteracy keeps him on the ball. Women crawl all over him, begging him to call round with his pheromonal armpits and his usefulness and all. They got conscientious heat pumps that they'd like him to install. All attempts to improve him were somehow doomed to fail. Still, we can't remove him. He ought to be in jail. Dependable, commendable, he's hardly ever broke. Underneath his Harrington there beats a heart of oak. Give him a messy job, he'll answer okey-doke. He's a Jason Statham look-alike. Let's face it, he's a bloke. A bloke who could drink Canada dry, and I don't mean ginger ale. Old school delinquent, he ought to be in jail. His sick sense of humour helps where misery is rife. Not for him, the brothers Grimm, or the two-way sporting life. Put your dreams away, Jim, he's faithful to his wife. He could take on the world and win with a clawback hammer and a ratchet knife. With the gift of immortality, he reckons you would find. Life is life, whatever, neither fair nor is it kind. Every previous occupant left a mess behind. Plus, bad advice is priceless to a complicated mind. He lives beyond this instant he's on the treasure trail old school delinquent he ought to be in jail he's always up for a nice cup of tea but he'd rather have a beer he tried that marijuana once but it just made everything weird his bulldog died that's when he cried a big fat fucking seer we'd die if we had to diy and he could be dead next year he's a two meat one veg guy potatoes never kale we can't afford to let him die. He ought to be in jail. <laughs> Unusually in these instances, I actually want to applaud. And and do you know what was wonderful <laughs> there? And, and I'm really grateful for you for doing that for this podcast. What was wonderful is that I've read that poem and I didn't read it how you just performed it. And as you performed it, well, it, it just became really <laughs> musical as you read it. It, it. it almost sounded like the great Ray Davis song that Ray Davis never wrote. It, oh, it, it just, wow. Just creates- Thanks. That's a Raymond Douglas Davis. Hey, th- thank you. 
an honour to be compared to him. It, it creates a whole new level, which of course, and we've got to wrap well, up. I've got go to tell you here that uh, tr- the true story is that Ray Davis picked me out of the gutter. He saw a fellow poet suffering the indignities of life and uh, put me on on the uh, Queen Elizabeth Hall when he was doing the Meltdown Festival. And since then, I've never looked back. So thanks a million, Ray. And to be compared in my craft to a person like Raymond Douglas Davis is an honour indeed. Thank you, Nick. Well, I, I, I sincerely meant it. Look, we've got to wrap up because we've only got you for one episode. I could be rolling this into two or three if we're not careful. Let me. Oh, can I just say go one on. thing yeah, before course. I go? Speak, that's brought to my attention a fellow Kinks uh, aficionado and, uh, and uh, a friend of mine will be uh, a, a special guest of mine when I'm on at the uh, London Palladium soon. Uh, that's uh, Linton Quasi Johnson. Yes. Also, a, a big, ask him, big fan of the Kinks. We love them. I think we all love the Kinks. You're coming to the stables on the 22nd of April. It is currently sold out, um, unsurprisingly. And that's why we're really grateful to you for giving us your time today as well, uh, John. But as always, simply put your name on the waiting list or or, or keep calling the box office on 01908 280 800 um, if you want to see if any tickets become available. There could be be cancellations. Some of my fans are very old. There there could be cancellations and returns. I'm not talking about mortality. It's worth pointing out that um, uh, you're going on tour and and it's quite a tour. Uh, You're doing three nights at the Lowry in Salford. I mean, this is is a, a huge tour and we're really really thrilled that you come to the stables because when you look at some of the other incredible venues you're doing around the uk uh, this is a real privilege so um keep calling the box office 01908 280 800 stables.org for more information um and you uh fine doctor john cooper clark you've been absolutely brilliant and i really appreciate your time it's been a, a, a privilege to talk to you on turn up the volume pleasure to do it nick keep taking the tablets Keep the faith. Coming up in March at the Stables in Milton Keynes. My name is Alison Young and these are my programmer picks of the month for March 2024. Lucy Stevens is an actor, classical singer and theatre maker responsible for beautifully crafted autobiographical shows which combine music, song and meticulously researched spoken word drawn from original sources. She previously appeared at the Stables accompanied by pianist Elizabeth Marcus with her critically acclaimed show What a Life which told the story of English contralto Kathleen Ferrier. This time, on Sunday, 10th March, at 2.30pm, Lucy and Elizabeth return to the intimate surroundings of Stage 2 to present the show Gertrude Lawrence, A Lovely Way to Spend an Evening. On this occasion, it may be an afternoon show, but it's the perfect opportunity to grab a cup of tea or something a little stronger and spend a couple of hours in the company of the 1930s star of musical comedy told in her own words, but with a wealth of songs from Noel Coward to Kurt Vile. My second pick is something very different, another return visit, but this time by the incredible female-fronted blues rock band Never the Bride. 25 years ago, composer, keyboard player and guitarist Catherine Feeney, a.k.a. Bean, got together with a vocal powerhouse that is Nicky Lamborn, and together they have created an unparalleled rock band, justifiably hailed as one of the UK's best live bands, and rock and roll royalty by both their peers and audiences. I've seen them at the stables a couple of times, including the occasion when they recorded their in-concert DVD here, and they blew me away. If you're in any doubt whether to book a ticket, I urge you to check out their YouTube footage generally, 
but in particular the acoustic version of their song The Living Tree, famously covered by Dame Shirley Bassey and recorded at Stables. It should be a contender for the Bond soundtrack in my humble opinion. They're appearing here on Saturday the 16th of March. My final pick is for another long-standing duo who fall into the category of traditional Scottish folk royalty. They are Arcadian fiddler Ali Bain and virtuoso accordionist Phil Cunningham. Their annual English tour is always greatly anticipated and they return to the stables on Tuesday 26th March. Expect an evening of exceptional musicianship, jigs, reels and slow ears and without doubt the best banter. These lads have got everything. That's it for this time. Have a great month and see you at the stables. For more information, head over to stables.org where you can also find out how you can help by becoming a friend of the stables, volunteering or making a donation to the charity. To follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram or YouTube, just search for Stables MK. And I guess when Alison puts together the programme at the stables, she's looking for events which will make you think, challenge you, give you a moment of escapism and make you leave with a smile. There's no doubt that the next show we're going to talk about does all the above and more. Rush, A Joyous Jamaican Journey, is a narrated musical which tells the story of the Windrush generation and the power of music. The show is both hugely entertaining and richly informative, and it's coming to the stables on Saturday, April the 13th at 8 o'clock. Reed Bass is the musical director, and he joins me now from Birmingham. Reed, welcome to Turn Up the Volume. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. So listen, Reed, it seems to me quite simple. Music, culture, history, all in one show. That's right. Um, we take you on a journey of Jamaican music, Jamaican life, and the journey from the Caribbean to Britain. In terms of your own upbringing, your grandparents were part of that Windrush generation. I wonder how central that has been to your family life since. Is it something that they talk about a lot? Yeah, I remember going around to my grandparents' house and you know, hearing all the stories about life life back home and hearing the stories about the journey over here and their experiences. Like, for instance, them coming from the hot country of Jamaica and coming here in the winter and absolutely freezing their toes off. So <laughs> stuff like that was quite funny. Um, we laughed at it because um, we were used to the snow and stuff and they weren't. And then just, they told us about their experience of that. And yeah, and the way they adjusted to life here, you know, trying to get work and all that kind of stuff, houses and all that. So it was always part of our story. And they faced a fair amount of prejudice on arrival, didn't they? Yeah. I mean, they were the generation that saw no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a big thing for them. And then obviously, you know, we hear about the struggles of trying to get employment, trying to get housing and altercations with the local teddy boys and rockers and whoever else. So, that was always something that was there. Um, but they didn't dwell on that. They looked at things positively. So it was always an uplifting kind of a story, really, even with those elements. See, I find that really interesting because, of course, the easy thing would be within a family to develop um, fear, to develop anger, to maybe even develop some kind of a complex, you know, that, that, that notion of is the world safe outside the front door? But everything you're saying there points to a family and, and your grandparents who wanted their children and indeed their grandchildren to be confident, to be proud of their roots and, and, and to go out and, and show that pride. Definitely. Um, we were Jamaican, we are Jamaican and that always came through in everything we did. Me being first generation British Jamaican, I was born here. Um, my parents came from Jamaica. They were sent for, for, by my grandparents, they were sent over here. And I was first generation 
British born. Um, so we kind of, I guess, we're an amalgam of both the British yeah. and the Jamaicans. So they wanted us to integrate. And I guess we are a symbol of that integration. Does it drive you, Reid? The thing that drives me is the the challenge of being black British um, and you know, British at the same time. Yeah. Um, because obviously, you know, we have all the injustices and the discrimination that we're constantly facing and constantly fighting every day. Um, but what drives me is trying to you know, make things better for my children and my grandchildren. So I think that's the driving force behind me and also behind the Windrush story, really, yes. I guess. It's very easy to, to slip into politics. And I actually make a point of not being political on this podcast. But I do wonder whether at the moment in the current climate, a show like this is more important than ever. Uh, if you do believe in tolerance, if you do believe in diversity, if you do believe in the beauty of the world, um, it feels to me that like the climate really does need shows like this at the moment. Oh, definitely. Um, as you know, Britain is a multicultural um, country. Uh, uh, we have politicians who are actually the face of multiculturalism, even though they deny it, you know, with their multi-ethnic backgrounds and their families and whatnot. Um, so I think the key to multi multiculturalism working is understanding. So coming to see a story, hearing our story um, from our perspective, because often at times a lot of these stories are told from someone else's perspective. So, you know, it misses out some of the subtleties yes. and some of the key points that we want to get across. So this is us telling our story about our experience here. So I think it's important that people hear this. I have a little theory, which I'm going to throw at you. And I speak okay. as someone who is, what am I now? Probably third generation Jewish immigrant. Um, okay. Maybe fourth. My, my little theory is that there are two things which enable people from outside of our communities to understand what happens inside of our communities. One yeah. is food and the other is the arts generally and, and music and dance in particular. Obviously, this show isn't about food, but do you agree with me that, that actually it is our, our individual cultures, our, the arts that happen within our communities that really give us access to understanding the people who, who, who live around us and who we live with? I think it's it's key that we, we understand and embrace the arts of different cultures, because as you're saying, it does give you a little peek into this, into the key, into the community, into the, you know, the workings of a community um, and understanding. And I guess that's perhaps the, the, yeah, it is the gateway into understanding a community um, as well as food and being from Caribbean, from Jamaican background, uh, food is always linked wherever <laughs> we are, you know. So if you come to one of our things, you'll get music and you will get food together. So you got me excited there for a minute, Reid. I thought you were, you know, going to be setting up street food stalls at the venue and no, not quite. It's, it's purely music. <laughs> I'm so afraid not. Talk, talk to me about the show, because obviously when we think about um, music and perhaps the music of the Windrush generation, our immediate thought is reggae. But of course, it wasn't just one island. There, there, there's reggae, there's calypso. It, it, it's quite a, a broad church, isn't it? It is. And uh, even within the reggae realm, I mean, that covers such a wide aspect. I mean, we go back to, we play some mento, which is like the original Jamaican folk music. Um, we play skia which is the precursor to reggae. And obviously we play reggae and we even touch on things like sound systems and DJs. And of course we, we have to play um, some Calypso and some Soka as well, because as you're saying, you know, the Windrush isn't just about Jamaica. It is about the Caribbean islands, really. In terms of reggae itself, I, I love reggae. And reggae can often be very 
dark. Even just in the beat, it can be very dark. But there is always with an underlying joy, isn't there? Yeah. Um, well, reggae is spiritual music, really. Um, it's one of those things that, you know, it, it speaks of the plight of the inner city and the urban youth. Um, obviously, with it being reggae, it's going to touch on Jamaican life and Black British life. So, yeah, the joys we ha- we happen to feel and some of the dark stuff as well as the spiritual. So the music will always reflect that. Um, some of the darker stuff is perhaps, you know, us getting in touch with that spiritual aspect of us and also dealing with the pain of some of the suffering that we've faced. So, yeah, but ultimately the music is really about joy. I mean, you, if you think about the blues, for instance, everyone thinks the blues, oh, my baby done left me and she took the dog in the <laughs> car and whatever. But really, yeah, people are still dancing to this music. So, yeah. you, you know, it can't be that sorrowful if you're dancing if that makes sense. It makes total sense. Talk to me a little bit about the nuts and bolts of the show, because I feel like we've not really described what the show looks like. Obviously, there's a band. Is it a piece of musical theatre? Is it a piece of music? How how does it work? Okay, the the show is based around the story of Windrush. We have um, the wonderful comedian, John Simmitt, as our narrator. He tells the story of uh, our journey. And also, we have the band playing to show you and to um, reinforce these stories with some wonderful music from years past and even some new music as well. So it is a mix of both the narrative and the music as well. What do you aim to achieve with the show? What, what do you feel is the goal? Well, the show is literally about two things, discussing the Windrush and the Windrush story um, right up to you know the, the scandal that we faced. And but also celebrating our contribution as Black British to the UK and to globe and to the globe as yeah. well, to internationally. Do, do you feel the show challenges? Do you feel that someone going to see it is going to be challenged in their thoughts, perhaps in their preconceptions? The challenge comes in challenging the taught history, um, because obviously, as we the saying is, you know, the history is always written written by the winners. So we challenge some of the notions, i.e. I'll give you this tidbit. Christopher Columbus, the great explorer, he got lost on his way to find India and that's how he ended up in Jamaica. That's why Jamaicans were called West Indians. So, you know, we give you little tidbits like that and hopefully it challenges and makes people reassess um, their preconceptions of the story and also of the people as well. What is clear, having seen some clips from the show, is you've got a fantastic band. Should we play a song to to give a sense of what it's going to be like? Oh, yes, do. Um, Let's play My Boy Lollipop by Millie. This was Jamaica's first international hit from the Skia era. Um, Pusha and Millie um, sold bucket loads and, you know, it really opened up the world to reggae music and Jamaican music.
really does sound absolutely fantastic. Of course, as I said, at the core is a brilliant band. You're the musical director, so I'm going to say it's very, very tightly put together because because that's your job. Uh, it's coming to the stables on the 13th of April, Saturday the 13th of April. It's an eight o'clock kickoff. Tickets available at stables.org. As always, you can call the box office on 01908 280 And this is a show which has been to some amazing venues uh, across the country. It was it was recently at, um, at the Bristol Old Vic. We're really lucky and privileged to have it come to the stables. And if you want to see some more clips, they're on the stables website. So if you go to the uh, the show page for Rush, a joyous Jamaican journey at stables.org, you can see some YouTube clips. And actually, uh, the Rush Theatre Company as well, their website is uh, very complete. So rushtheatrecompany.co.uk uh, for more YouTube clips. R- uh, Reed, leave me with one thought. Why should we come to this show? All right, we should come to this show simply because... It is the story of a people who have greatly influenced this country. It has influenced the world. Uh, it tells our story. And if you just want a good time, you know, just dancing and reminiscing about some of that old Jamaican music that we all grew up listening to, you know, I mean, just come to the show. You'll know, you'll never know when you'll get to party again. So mm-hmm. come to the show. Really, it's a real pleasure to talk to you. Uh, we'll look forward to uh, having the show at the stables in April. I appreciate your time. We look forward to being here. Thank you. This is Turn Up the Volume. And now for a first on Turn Up the Volume, a brass band, but not just any brass band, the world-famous award-winning Brickhouse and Rastrick brass band. They're coming to the stables on Sunday, March the 17th. The perfect way to spend your Sunday afternoon, whether you're a full-blown, see what I did there, connoisseur, or just love a great musical spectacle. Chris Hardy is the solo B flat tuber in the band, and I'm not pretending I fully know what that means right now. He joins me from his home in Yorkshire. Chris, welcome to Turn Up the Volume. Hi, you okay? Uh, solo B flat tuba, explain. Uh, yeah, so uh, it's uh, it's a bit of a strange one. It's got all sorts of different nicknames. It's sometimes called double B. There's all sorts of uh, yeah. It's got all sorts of nicknames. But yeah, the B flat is just the the key of the instrument. If you like, it's it's what the uh, you know it's it's quite technical, I suppose. But yeah, it's it's nothing to worry about. It's just it's it's a big uh, a big rumbly noise machine. Does it make you really important in the band? I'd like to think so, but I think others probably argue against that. <laughs> Listen, I'm I'm totally out of my comfort zone here, talking to a leading member of a leading brass band formed back in 1881. I'm intrigued by the, the social history here. How and why did Yorkshire become such a powerhouse for brass bands? Well, I suppose traditionally it started off as uh, something basically in, in the uh, industrial heartland of the UK. Um, so wherever you find mills or uh, collieries, you'll, you'll find a brass band, effectively, whether that's in South Yorkshire, in the collieries there, uh, in the northwest sort of factories and mills, or in the Yorkshire factories and mills and collieries. Initially, it's, it's sort of we've been led to believe that it kind of started off as a way for, for mill and factory owners and things like that to, to keep their uh, employees out of the pub. Right. Um, it was something for them to do. And then eventually, the kind of competition aspect of it because we, we do consider it a bit of a bit of a sport if you like it's quite gladiatorial we have uh, a number of competitions every year where we compete against each other and uh, that all kind of stemmed from mill owners uh, trying to kind of entice the very best players from other mills and collieries to their brass band by offering them employment at their at their business it's funny you mention that because I was actually going to ask a little bit later on this notion of, of transfers, because you've been with the band for three years and you've worked internationally mm-hmm. with other bands and you've helped them land major prizes. And here you are now in this band. I was going to wonder whether it's like football. Are, are you, you know, coveted? Did, did Brickhouse and Rastrick tap you up to try and get you to transfer? 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a little bit different than how it used to be, I suppose, because naturally with the uh, kind of more traditional forms of music, it's not a dying art, If you, but I think there's there's less and less people interested in it now than, than there were, which is, which is a shame, really. You know, that obviously has a lot to do with kind of governmental things and things like that, you know, funding in, in, in the arts, but that's that's a different topic entirely. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's one of those things where, you know, there used to be a kind of a, quite a big waiting list for, for, for players in bands. Um, but, you know, if, if there's a band that has their eye on a particular player that they think might be able to help them succeed in future competitions then they, they, they might try and tap them up yeah. and um it's been a long time coming really for for, for me to join Brighouse. it's it's one of those things that weirdly it's, it's the brass band that i always wanted to play for I've, I've kind of played for other bands but in the back of my mind i've kind of always wanted to play for yeah. Brighouse. basically like being transferred to arsenal is it now i'm opening up a hornet's nest let's not go there with, <laughs> with football teams how would it have worked at home so would children have been encouraged slash had pressure put on them to learn an instrument from a young age in order to be part of that really important cog in, in the local community at, at a later stage. Yeah, definitely. And I think there's there's a lot of the way that it used to work traditionally that was it was kind of passed father to son. Is it brass banding is traditionally a, a very male dominated field, if you like. It's 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 but I mean, thankfully that all changed embarrassingly not that long ago. Um but <laughs> last Tuesday. Yeah, yeah, not not quite, but I think um you know, some some of the last bands to kind of in, in, in introduce women into the the or, their organisations were probably close to only about 15 years ago, which is, is obviously quite slow on the upkeep. But, you know, everything, everything's changed now and that's for the better, absolutely. You know, there's, there's a, so, some of the absolute world's finest brass band musicians are, are female and it's, it's just something that's absolutely fabulous. But in terms of, you know, where the tradition started and, yeah, I think I would say it's probably kind of generational at the start. Non, nobody in my family plays, for example, actually. So it, it did all change. Um, and it became kind of a, a government-led initiative at one stage. Local, local music centres uh, would provide free lessons, and that's unfortunately become it's kind of dwindling a little bit now as, as funding gets lost. But I started when I was nine or ten and was introduced to um, a, a, a brass instrument and just fell in love with it straight away. You know, had weekly lessons with a, a teacher for free and um, was introduced to local brass ensembles to. You know, uh, I'm, I'm from Bolton originally, and it's um, so it was Bolton Youth Brass Band and all, all of that, and absolutely fell in love with it, and just kind of worked my way up, really. You know, prior to doing this interview, I was, I was sort of wondering when I when I last saw a brass band, whether I'd even seen a brass band, and then I jokingly mentioned Arsenal to you a few minutes ago, and it's all come back to me because I don't know if you're aware, but for many many years, indeed for indeed for many decades, Arsenal at Highbury had a brass band that always played at mm. half time, and it's taking me back now because you know this is going back oh, 35, 40 years, so you'd have half time, and they would come on, and there would be I don't know twenty five, thirty of them all immaculately in five or six rows and their sound filled the whole of Highbury and it, it was quite a yeah. sight yeah it's 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 one of those things I think a lot of people there's a preconceived notion of brass bands that it's a little bit you know umpire kind of music or it's, it's all very regimented and things like that but and, and that the sound is one-dimensional but there's there's practically nothing that a brass band can't do in terms of sound quality and things like that they're capable of anything and as a result evoking a variety of emotions as well and it's it's one of those things you, you can watch a film like brassed off and have the traditional kind of william tell and danny boy type stuff or yeah. you, but you can also have have them playing incredibly avant-garde music and and or, you know symphonic style music as well it's 
it's and it's incredibly versatile and also folk of course because you, you've uh, branched out collaborations with kate rusby um the unthanks as well mm-hmm. it's a whole gamut yeah. of, of other genres isn't it yeah absolutely and there's you know uh not to not that we like to kind of talk about our competition <laughs> however <laughs> however uh there is uh, a brass band um that i actually i played with for, for quite some years uh that are based over in stockport called the the, the fairy band they have a side project that that is very successful um it's called Acid Brass. It was originally set up by an artist, a Turner-winning artist called Jeremy Della, yeah, um, back in the nineties, I believe, late nineties. And it was they they specifically go out to concerts, play major festivals in front of tens of thousands of people, uh, and play acid house dance music in full brass band uniform. Fantastic. He, he basically Jeremy Della came up with this idea that he, he created a flow chart and tried to connect two of the most distant things he could think of in his mind. Yeah, um, and it was traditional British brass bands and acid house dance music coming out of Detroit. <laughs> and he connected them because they're both, they both have, they both have deep roots in working class yes. uh, society. There's, there's lots of different projects going, going on. Um, one of our other companies is Grindthorpe Colliery Band. I've got a project, I think it's called Bangra Brass, where uh, it, they, they fuse traditional brass band music with Bangra, uh, obviously traditionally Indian music. Um, and it's just it's just fabulous, you know. Like I say, that there, there, there really isn't. I, I genuinely believe this. I'm not just biased. No. <laughs> I, I genuinely believe there isn't anything a brass band can't do. And also, what it shows is what brass bands have always done and always been, which is very much reflecting their local community. I mean, you mentioned how slow, perhaps, mm. uh, they were to to come into the modern world, but ultimately, and it's not to forgive it. They they were they were reflecting the working life of their local community. Thankfully, as we both say, that's now changed. Looking at these other parts of the community, say um, uh, getting involved with Bangor as an example, um, it really continues that tradition of being part of and reflecting the community that it belongs to. Yeah, and I think if if we're going to survive as a movement, um, as a brass band movement, I think we do need to think of things like this to to be, make ourselves more inclusive and and more and more inviting and to local communities we need you know outreach is a major part of what we try and do and, and work with 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 youth um especially at, you know at Brickhouse we we work regularly with local music centers and, and youth brass bands and try and you know promote the, the next generation as much as possible because at the end of the day you know I might myself only be 30 years old but I'm not going to be able to play the tuba forever and I, I you know I'd quite like there to be someone nipping at my heels to yeah. to replace me at some point in the future just looking ahead to your concert at the stables and i'm trying to apply the same parameters to watching you as i would to for example a classical music orchestra so what is it i love about them well it's how incredibly tight they are the literal symphony of movement and emotion and also the ongoing soap opera on stage the different personalities both of the instruments and the performers themselves oh absolutely yeah without a shadow of a doubt um you know, there's a, as much as we try and we're obviously very professional on stage and, you know, we're always dressed immaculately and we walk on in, 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 a, in a formation as well. You know, we, we, we stand up to, to acknowledge our conductor when, they, you know, just like a classical orchestra yeah. uh, would, would acknowledge their conductor when they come on stage. We, we do the same thing and, and we're, we're very professional, but there's always, you know, when, when you watch a brass band, there's this fantastic interplay that you can see if you really look very carefully between the musicians, this almost unspoken language between us. Um, I say almost unspoken. It's, it is unspoken. It's, it's the same a, as an unspoken yeah. language. Yeah, there's this there's this connection that's that you can feel it, and it, it, it's electric. When you see a brass band that that is of the very highest level uh, performing at that level, it's there's there's nothing else quite like it, um, other than something like a professional symphony orchestra. Yeah. Watching people do something that 
they've worked their, their entire lives to to be better at and try and provide an experience for for every member of that audience is 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 fabulous i think you've painted a beautiful picture there sunday the 17th of march four o'clock at the stables stables stables.org for tickets it's already selling very well if you want to go and see it i would suggest going to the website or you can call the box office on 01908 280 to see the remarkable site that is the brick house and rastric band or or brigus is is that what you call yourselves yeah it's quite an affectionate nickname yeah yeah go and see brigus so the brick house and rastric band sunday the 17th of march more information can be found as well at the brick house and rastric band website website which is brickhouseandrastrick.com chris i think this looks fantastic and it looks a huge amount of fun and a real privilege that you're coming to the stables uh, i know that you choose very very carefully where you do your performance dates and you've performed anywhere from the royal Albert hall to, to international venues so it's absolutely wonderful that you come to the stables and we'll look forward to welcoming you then no i can't wait to be there and that's a wrap for this episode of Turn Up The Volume. I'll be back next month with more great artists for you to enjoy. In the meantime, we hope to see you at the stables itself, taking in these shows in person. Please do tell your friends about this series and, of course, about the stables. And if you could just click on the ratings button for this series, that would be brilliant as it helps bring the work of the stables to a wider audience. Until next time, from me and all the team at the stables, it's goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>